presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as uh, those of you who have been part of the conversation and the teachings these last number of weeks, we've been looking at the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, the ungovernable, unreliable, ephemeral nature of all experience, internal, external. And because, you know, the mind is quite oriented towards thinking and concepts, you know, that's a very potent filter. And when we have a concept, oh yeah, this is Common Ground Sunday morning group, concepts have the appearance of solidity and permanence in a way that a more direct experiencing of the moment doesn't. So we're actually, mostly in our lives, we're confused by the concepts our thinking mind generates. And of course, that we share together in our social sphere of interacting, communicating with each other. Of course, we're always, or almost always, that interaction with other people is through language and through concepts which, like I said, have concepts have the appearance of solidity and permanence. They're diluting, we say. There's nothing inherently wrong with a thought or a concept, an idea. The problem comes when our mind mistakens, mistakenly thinks the thought is more than what it is. So whatever this is for each of us right now, this showing up together on live stream, reflecting on the teachings of the Buddha together, whatever it is, the concept, whatever that phrase or that idea is, oh, I'm at the Common Ground Sunday morning program, that's just a pointer to something that's quite alive with change, quite ephemeral, quite dynamic. It isn't a thing or a noun as much as a natural happening process unfolding, right? But we use a concept so we don't actually have to show up into the immediacy of what we're feeling and how those feelings are changing and what we're seeing and what we're thinking and how all of those sense experiences are really totally characterized by change, the ongoing change, ongoing flow, ongoing motion of thought, emotion, sight, sound. So, the last few weeks, in particular, I've been using or sharing the Buddhist teachings on how that perception, keeping in mind the truth of change, which is just what's already here naturally when our mind isn't superficially fixated on thought and concept, then we'll notice the flow of the moment, the dynamic changing nature of the moment, and how that perception of change can really facilitate the hard opening to freedom, to a more and more released way of being, as opposed to a fixated, tight way of being. And so one way the Buddha taught, one of the major ways the Buddha taught is, hey, stabilize your present moment awareness so you can see things more clearly, when you start to see things more clearly the way they actually are, keep in mind the changing nature because 
by keeping in mind the changing nature, you will naturally tease out the mind's habit to cling, to grasp, to get attached, to identify. And in teasing out those deep habits of attachment, you will gradually experience more and more space, the space of freedom, the space of love, the deeper space of release, the heart that is empty of selfing, of self-centered drama, the heart that's empty of grasping with greed, grasping with hate, grasping with denial or distraction. So I'm going to shift today from, I mean, very related to what we've been talking about, how to use the opening to impermanence to facilitate the heart dropping, abandoning its habits of clinging. You and I, we don't personally let go of clinging or grasping, right? Because that would be so easy. (laughs) You know, we just hear the teaching from the Buddha, yeah? Real supreme freedom arises through the cessation of grasping. And we go, okay, and we just let go of grasping and we'd be an awakened one. But obviously it doesn't happen like that. But there is a natural process when the supporting causes are there, then the letting go of attachment, the letting go of clinging, selfing, that happens as a natural process. And what the Buddha discovered in his own heart and in his own experience is that really attuning to the reality of change, the perception of change, really highlighting that truth that everything is in motion. Experience is really experiencing. It's what's a a, a natural unfolding, a movement of experiencing, right? And keeping that in mind, keeping that in mind as we live our life, as we do our meditation, it wears out any habits of fixing with attachment, fixing with identification, with selfing or self-centered dramas. They just don't work when we're aligning or attuning to the reality of change. Now today I want to sort of expand that into a slightly different area where how we use the understanding of change, of anicca, impermanence, to really support the development of love, of metta, and the four flavors of love, right? We have that basic goodness, basic friendliness, the word metta. We have karuna, which is that tender-hearted, compassionate relationship to suffering. Oh, may you be free of the suffering. If there's something I can do, may I do it. If there's nothing I can do, I abide with this wish. May you find a way for the suffering to be alleviated in your life. Because as you know, we're not always, there isn't always something we can do to alleviate the suffering of others. But it doesn't get in the way of compassion. If compassion is really this liberated state of mind, if there's something I can do that would be appropriate for me to do to alleviate your suffering, I'm going to do that. If there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do in this moment. But I'm, I can abide in this dynamic, open sensing of your suffering and sensing the wish, may you be free from the suffering. It's, it's a really beautiful emotional state, even though it is that proximity to suffering that brings compassion to the fore. 
So we have basic friendliness, we have compassion, we have appreciative joy or gladness, sympathetic joy, where we're just appreciating what's beautiful, appreciating the happiness of others, even if it's just simple happiness. Someone got a new pair of shoes and they're happy. Oh, may your happiness continue. I understand how ephemeral that happiness is, but I can still appreciate it. As long as this happiness is alive in your heart, that's a cause for my own joy, like appreciating that simple, ordinary happiness of getting what you wanted. Right? So even something that simple can be appreciated. And there's so much. We can appreciate the green greenness of the leaves in the summer. We can appreciate the color and the falling of the leaves in the fall and the bareness of the trees in the winter and the buds in the spring. There really isn't any moment that doesn't have the possibility of mudita, the capacity of our heart to appreciate how alive, how much intelligence is just part of this interdependent thing we call life or reality. And then the last of the four qualities, equanimity, this beautiful, enlivened state of balance. And it's often, you know, all of these beautiful qualities of the heart can be misunderstood. And in the later commentarial tradition, there, this uh, teaching on the near enemies of these four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So attachment is the near enemy of basic friendliness. Like I'm friendly, but I'm, I'm attached. I have an agenda. And if I don't get what I want, or if it isn't the way I want it to be, then I'm going to take my love back. I'm going to take my friendliness back. And with compassion, the near enemy is a kind of pity. Like, I don't really want you to be suffering. And it slips into, not only do I wish for you to be free from suffering, your suffering's kind of bothering me. It's sort of scaring me. And my compassionate action, my compassionate uh, wishes for you or more about me dealing with being irritated by your suffering than really that heartfelt wish, may you be free from suffering, really caring about you. So sometimes we call that pity, where it's like, ooh, I don't want to get, I don't want to be contaminated by your suffering. So my wish that you may be free from suffering is really about protecting some sense of a me who feels a little bit vulnerable because of your suffering. Obviously, that's not compassion, that's fear, masquerading as compassion. And even mudita, this appreciative joy, there's what's called a near enemy, right? Where the, the, the lightness of that joy of appreciation, we kind of get intoxicated with the exuberance and the joy itself. And we're sort of not really appreciating that person's happiness and wishing that that happiness continue. We're kind of lost in our own exuberance, our own uh, sort of contact high from somebody else's success or somebody else's happiness. And we've lost the intimacy and the connection. We're not in the moment. And that's the thing about all the near enemies. You can recognize them in your own heart when you're, you're noticing that sense of disconnection instead of that sense towards boundless opening boundless, unrestricted 
And, you know, the boundless, the opening is really characterized by non-fear, non-protection. And so for equanimity, the near enemy would be a kind of um, indifference. You know, so that beautiful balance, what makes it so beautiful, that cool, unshakable, intimate balance is the intimacy. Like, it's, you know, easy to have equanimity when we're disconnected. You know, you could have, I could have a lot of equanimity about some problem on the other side of the planet, you know, where people are really suffering. But I, oh yeah, causes and conditions, things happen this way sometimes. You know, I care about you, but I'm not really connected with the causes and conditions that are causing your suffering, you know. So I care, but I know I'm not in charge. And it's like, oh, that's easy when we're on the other side of the planet and we don't know any of those people. But what is equanimity when we're really connected? So true equanimity really depends on whether we're using our imagination or we have the direct experience right in front of us. But we're really peeling away any distance, any armor, any defensiveness. And we see the complexity, we see the ambiguity, we see the messiness, the entrenchment, like maybe the social political situation we're on we're in here in our country around all the injustice or economic injustice and racial injustice and just injustice around you know different ways that we differentiate each other around gender class and all these ways and how entrenched how deeply these problems are embedded in our institutions and in how our hearts and minds are conditioned. And we can see that and we can want to, we feel like the appropriate thing is to distance ourselves. Oh yeah, the world's a mess. The causes and conditions for racism are deep, for classism, sexism are quite deep. I care, but it ain't my problem, right? Because I didn't set it in motion. And that's that indifference. It can look like equanimity, because the heart can have a superficial kind of balance and evenness. But it's really because of the idea that, you know, I'm apart from the messiness and the injustice and the craziness that is moving in our community, that somehow we stand apart. We're separate. I care about it, but... You know, and I really hope you all figure it out, but it's not my problem. And so we have to get to almost get a sense, learn how to detect these near enemies when our heart is separating instead of our heart moving apamana, that movement towards boundless, that unrestricted. And instead of getting confused by the idea of boundlessness as sort of really being out there somewhere. It's really more about the absence of defense, the absence of separation. We're uh, realizing, it's a really an awakening, we're realizing that the heart doesn't need a fixated stance, doesn't need to be fixated 
located anywhere. And that's really like when we run into somebody who's got a lot of natural, trustworthy love, you know, one of the things we sense in that interaction with somebody who's in a really alive and real place of loving is they're not, it's not about where they're located. It's not about them. The generosity of someone's heart in that moment and how they're showing up, what they're saying, how they're acting, it isn't about, it isn't defending somebody or somebody getting something they need. It's not that that stuff is even bad, but we want to discover this way of being where really unpack that, that experience of the freedom of loving unconditionally, maybe we could call it. So I want to talk a little bit more about this, like this, how impermanence, seeing the changing nature, can really support that trusting of the boundless, unconditional love, so to speak. And in a way, you know, as we have found, when we, you know, when we're confronted with the truth of impermanence, you know, however that might show up, like something goes away that we didn't expect to go away, something happens that we didn't expect to happen, and we can feel a little shocked and um, frozen, betrayed by the sudden arising of impermanence. Impermanence doing what impermanence does. Things come and go. And they're coming and going due to innumerable causes and conditions which we don't see and don't clearly understand, right? They have their own wisdom, their own nature. I took a course with Venerable Analio this last week on emptiness and the Brahma Baharas, the divine abodes that we're talking about today. And I'm not sure if this is his original statement or he was quoting somebody, but he says, the void of emptiness is full to the brim of causes and conditions. So this really teaches us like we want to open our heart to the nth degree, opening without fixation, without the mind being tight with fear, tight with greed, tight with hate, tight with any ideas of separation. Right? So that's opening to the void of emptiness empty of any fixations. So we're opening, and what do we find in that void? As he says, full to the brim with causes and conditions. This is the very dynamic activity of life, of emotion, of power plays, of love, of beauty, of the messiness of our world, the messiness of our hearts and minds, the messiness of our body. When I say messiness, I'm not in any way implying that it's bad, but messy in the sense of not being in control. A beautiful expression of everything that's in motion, this interdependent activity we call life, this sort of full to the brim of causes and conditions. So when we open to Dhamma the way it is and we see that this moment is full to the brim of causes and conditions, we basically, just to keep it simple, have two reactions. One is to get anxious because we sense that the sense of me can no way be in control of everything that's moving. And we freeze up. 
and we can activate kind of more aversive control techniques. It can activate wanting to give up. It can activate distraction and denial, right? All of which are just more and more ways to fixate a sense of a me in a world that is totally and completely fluid without any fixed point. So you see that that really is the birthplace of existential anxiety, the deep, almost never-ending, uneasy feeling in our heart because we're trying to be a somebody in a very open, fluid, non-fixed world. It will never work. And this is really goes to the heart of dukkha, what we mean by how this is unsatisfactory. Because it's not that nature is somehow off or the world is somehow off, but the conditioned habit to want to find safety from an egoic point of view, that's what's off, ain't going to happen, will be eternally frustrating. And the Buddha describes this in really heartbreaking terms, like how long have human beings been seeking solid ground in a way you're never going to find it. We're never never going to find it. Long enough, we've cried more tears than would more than fill the four oceans. That's a lot of tears, right? So he used these sort of graphic images to, to sort of point out how that doesn't work. But there's another way to use impermanence, which in a way is this tenderizing process. And it, it takes some real skill, like how to use the wildness, the change, the impermanence, the ephemeral nature, the lack of, of control that we have in our lives, the exposure to both the beauty, but especially to the difficulty in life, the injustice in life, right? How can we use it not to trigger the reaction of greed, hate, and delusion, denial, but how can we use impermanence, the ephemeral nature, to tenderize the heart in a way that wears out all habits of separation, all habits of clinging and grasping? And this, I think, really works well like as a beginning training point for us to use whenever we bump into change, whenever we bump into something happening that we didn't expect, could be something good happening too, not just the bad stuff that happens, but sudden things that show up, oh, oh, I didn't expect that, to really let it tenderize our heart. like Because the response is either to, oh, I'm not in control, or we could say, oh, it's like a, almost like a sense of awe. There's something happening here. I'm not in control over it. What's the appropriate response? Well, maybe a sense of awe and trust. Because what life teaches us more than anything is mistrusting life doesn't help. You know, freezing up, reacting with denial, reacting with some attempt to be in charge, be in control. More than anything, life teaches us that doesn't work. So we, trusting is very close to this willingness to care, this willingness to have our heart open and generous. Like, I don't know much, but I know it is this way right now. And I can either imagine there's a way for me to say no to the way that it is right now, already 
it is already this way right now, I can either practice saying no, which is really, when we look at it clear, clearly, absurd. How, how would it make sense to say no to the way it already is? So just bring to mind something that's difficult in your life or in the world. It can make so much sense to want to say no, because this thing we're thinking about maybe is a cause for real harm. People are really suffering. But to say no is to separate ourselves from reality. It is the way that it is right now. So why not practice saying, yes, it is this way. But it breaks our heart. So this is the thing. It's like, maybe that's okay. Maybe the heart is designed to break open, to wear down any kind of hardness. Now, like I said earlier, this is a delicate operation, right? We're in this dynamic where we're using the wildness of change, not being in control, life happening due to causes and conditions, the immediacy of our relationships and the wider world. We're using that skillfully, not too much, not too little, to wear down the habit of separating ourselves with greed, like, oh, I'll get this, I'll get a big car, I'll have a gated community I'll live in, I'll have a great security system, I'll hang out with only people I like. You know, we have all these ways of using greed, using hate, using denial and delusion to fixate some kind of safety. But it only increases the sense of exposure and vulnerability. It only amplifies that existential anxiety. On the surface, it may for a while seem like it's working, but the monster is lurking, the monster of reality, because we've turned reality, the change, impermanence, we've turned it into a monster, because it's hunting us. Whatever certainty we think we have, even the certainty of our ideas, they're not, they're not what they appear to be. They're not solid ground. So this very nimble work of using the reality of impermanence to break our heart wide open, to tenderize our heart, to bring our heart more and more into the stream, the unconditioned movement of causes and conditions, for lack of a better way of talking about it. Uh, the motion of the body, the motion of emotion, the motion of feeling, the emotion of thought, the dance of our social world. Precisely because it is messy, it can't be controlled, that it's full of beauty and full of horrible injustice, right? It breaks our heart wide open. And here's the really powerful thing to realize is that in that process of using impermanence to wear down habits that don't work and to crack open the heart, tenderize the heart so it's more and more open, it's that openness, that vulnerability, that exposure, that capacity to, to see and feel and be in the middle of all this activity of life that supports a more skillful engagement, a more creative and beautiful and fearless engagement. What we say, what we do, what we don't do, how we act. And you know how it is. I mean, we see this better, of course, in other people. But when people 
are engaging a problem, whether it's just in their own heart or in their family or in the wider world, when we see people engaging problems from a place of fear, a place of greed, a place of some kind of fixed idea, even an idea we may agree with, but the fixedness always undermines the engagement, always gets in the way ultimately. So what we want is we want, you know, there's no way to live a life without being engaged. Sitting on a couch, avoiding life is your, could be somebody's way of engaging life. Not a necessarily very effective one, but is it, it's just as much an engagement as somebody, you know, running for president or getting on the streets or deciding to raise children or deciding not to raise children or whatever it might be that somebody sort of seizes their path into the, into life. So we're always going to have an engaged life. It's just a question if that engagement is flowing from a fixed place that the heart is imagining is right or me, or that engagement is really coming from a more open, unfixed place. And like I mentioned in the guided meditation, we're learning to trust that boundless, that unfixed quality. And I really encourage you, just in ordinary moments of your day, as much of the day, not just your formal sitting time, just see if you can relax into a more unbounded state. Like I'll give you an example right now. This may be a nice entry for this. So, you know, a lot of us we're trained with loving-kindness practice to bring somebody to mind. For me, you know, maybe I bring holding my cat against my chest, feeling the warmth of my cat's body, feeling the weight, feeling the contact. So it's a very earthy, real memory for me. You know, I can really viscerally bring that to mind. And just the sense of the cat appreciating being held and me appreciating and just that kind of reverberation of like we're having a moment together that we're both in our own way appreciating and it's entirely from my perspective it feels entirely wholesome I don't sense any greed hate any aversion delusion denial I don't see any fixedness in that I'm not attached to it lasting right I've learned <laughs> you know it doesn't work to get attached it will last as long as it lasts, and then the cat gets restless, and I let go, and the cat does his thing, and I do my thing. But for those seconds when it's not, so I can bring that memory to mind, I have that real visceral memory, but that memory is like a wormhole to the quality of love. And then, I, then I'll bring the, you know, as I remember that experience, I'll notice in particular the boundless, like that's always here and now, that absence of greed, hate, and delusion that that memory of holding my cat represents, right? So the memory is a wormhole to that experiencing the heart not fixed with greed, not fixed with hate or aversion or fear, not fixed with denial or destruction i.e. a heart that's open, generously open. And to really sense that wish for ease, that wish for peace, that wish for well-being, 
for all beings, for all things. Now, once we have a way to remember, basically we're remembering that this heart, this mind, has that capacity to be loving in a very beautiful, real way, then we learn to trust it and to abide and to take it on the road. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Like to find it in all kinds of ordinary moments, like right now. I mean, this is as good of a moment as any to realize that this heart right now doesn't require any sort of fixed location. It can actually be abiding in a more open, generous, kindly, tender-hearted, appreciative, balanced way. Right? And then if there's something that appears right now for you to be in the way, then just bring that generous quality to whatever appears to be in the way of boundlessness right now, like open space. But open space that really has, initially it's really important to sense the pleasantness of that love, the healing quality of that love, that inclusive, non-fragmenting, not dividing things up in terms of me and you or good and bad, but a more inclusive, more generously inclusive quality. And of course, if we don't practice that, we're not going to get good at it. So we really have to like, be interested. This is the start. Be interested in those ordinary moments, like the example I gave of holding my cat for a few seconds when he's enjoying it and I'm enjoying it and there's no greed, anger, and delusion, apparently, in my heart at least, you know, and uh, and just really appreciating that boundless, simple boundless freedom for a few seconds because it reminds me of what the heart is capable of. So why not now? Trusting that boundless. And you know, for me, a lot of times when I trust boundlessness, what comes to the surface are all the ancient wounds, all the unhealed, healed places of pain, trauma, grief. But, but the key for us is to not be confused. I mean, why would we expect that we would have no wounds? <laughs> no unfinished business. Of course we have unfinished business. We're human. <laughs> and uh, and it doesn't, I'm not implying that I know all my unfinished business. I just feel what I feel in any given moment. And it's really useful not to be surprised. So, because we can be idealistic about the word boundless, boundless love. That's why that tender heartedness or uh, one image we're trying to evoke in an altar we're putting together at Common Grounds Retreat Property. Uh, people like uh, Sue Cochran, some of you know Sue, a long-time leader from Common Ground who's really working hard to deal with her many bouts of cancer, stage four cancer she's been working with for over 10 years now, I think. But uh, she really uh, turned us on to this Japanese art form where they take broken pottery and they Put a beautiful golden seam as they put it back together. I, I can't pronounce, can't remember how to pronounce the Japanese term for that art form, so I'm not going to massacre it by trying. But some of you know that. But anyway, she's written about that just in terms of her 
Dharma work with her cancer, her many rounds of cancer and treatments over many years, and really finding something very beautiful, very liberating, coming in the messy, messy work of doing what we can with cancer, or doing what we can with racism in this country, or doing what we can with economic injustice, right? There's some, we don't, we don't want to be confused by how entrenched and messy to think that something beautiful can't come out of this. There's something beautiful, even before we figure out how to heal the deep, deep roots of racism, there's something very beautiful and healing about waking up to it and doing the work and doing the next thing. Even before the, the deep reverberations of racism get taken care of, there's something about showing up to it. And this is true with all the work that's asking. So I'm, this is the last point I want to make as we get curious about boundlessness, all the expanded states that come with developing our practice. Because that term, empty of self, right, which is really the crowning jewel of the awakening process, that's just that boundless opening, that boundless participating with life to the nth degree, where we're moving the last fixation, this this deep habit of locating a self. So all that's left is unrestricted participation. And I think a good word for that unrestricted participation is love. You know, it's real love. It isn't love with attachment, it isn't love with fear, or love with indifference, or love where the mind is sort of captivated by the joy and the freedom. It's really a functional way to be a human being. It's what's so, for me, so trustworthy about the Buddhist teachings is how pragmatic. It really talks about freedom to the nth degree, but the result of kind of engaging the practices, for me at least, is something that's so real and trustworthy in terms of dealing with my own body, my own relationships, and the world that I inhabit. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.